Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from Beverly Hills. First, what's the forecast for air travel for the next 18 months? I sat down with Rafat Ali, the CEO of Skift, to get the latest research. And then, a deep dive into Beverly Hills with Mayor Dr. Julian Gold, Beverly Hills historian Phil Savinick, and of course, a chat with the real Beverly Hills cop, Police Chief Mark Stainbrook. First up, Rafat Ali. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Rafael Ali, welcome, sir. Thank you, Peter. So, yeah, you can say thank you, Peter. <laughs> I like that, though. That was good. Always pause between thank you and Peter because you never know, you know. The real question that everybody has is we know now, because we've seen it now for the last two years, that travel is booming. Forget the terms of revenge travel, anything like that. But can it be sustained at this level? 
So weakening is happening. Weakening is the word that industry people here are using at the conference. Uh, but it's still a lot higher than it was pre-COVID. Prices certainly are, as you very well know. Um, there is some sense that by 2024, as the savings run out for people, as the larger economy in U.S. and Western part of the world um, dries up a little bit, is that some of the demand is going to go. Uh, but every CEO here is very bullish and they're investing. And as you've, you've, you've talked to all the airline CEOs, they're expanding routes for next year's summer. And obviously, they have to plan this far ahead. So clearly, they have some data that's showing that the demand is not weakening. But let's redefine the word demand. People want to travel, but the reason why it may be weakening is they won't be able to afford it. True. And then I think this is where the demand will shift to different places. So one of the losers for this summer in was U.S. domestic travel. Because as you know, everybody was going to Europe, even though it was expensive as out. Domestic industry potentially next year uh, will benefit potentially if the rates become too high internationally and people want to stay local as well. So that's, I think, one of the hopes that that's there for the for the industry next year. Uh, historically, every time there's been an economic crisis, people tend to stay closer to home. Correct. That's always the case. Except once. During the debacle in 2009, I was in Paris and every single hotel in Paris was oversold with Americans. And I'd walk in the lobby and I'd say to people, you do realize there's an economic debacle going back in, at home. Oh, yeah. And you still decided to come? Yeah. Could you tell me why? Without exception. You know what they said, Rafa? They said, we felt if we didn't come now, we'd never come at all. It was sort of a last supper mentality. Yeah. And I think post-COVID, as you know very well, it feels like a lot of people are traveling just because. And it's, there was so much the pent-up demand. I know we use the word. But, uh, and also, I think a lot of people now are celebrating all types of life moments through travel. And because it's become so accessible, because digital has revolutionized how people can access fairs and books, uh, book travel, etc., and get all this information. So I think, um, in general, people are, are living their lives through the lens of travel a lot more than we would have expected, I don't know, 10 years ago. You just give me an idea because you said people are traveling just because. I'm now going to start a new airline called Just Because. Well, certainly you should. You could charge any rate just because these days. No, no, no. That would be another airline called Because We Can. Because we can. Because we can. <laughs> certainly the rates are still very high, as you know, on the airline side, particularly international. And what this means is seasonality is going off the table. Correct. There was there have been talks about like shoulder season is dead. And because um, particularly summer travel this year, uh, a lot of uh, natural calamities happened and obviously it was very hot in many parts of the world. Uh, people are saying how people travel in only certain periods of summer is going to go away, which means that people will travel in other parts of, uh, of the year as well. So seasonality, every destination you speak to, that's their number one goal is to get over the seasonality. And certainly maybe climate change will do it. Maybe people, this is prices will do it, but it seems like it's moving towards that. I had to sort of laugh the other day, not in a good way, when the government of Greece announced they were now going to start to limit the number of people going to the Acropolis every day to just 20,000, down from 30,000, as if that's going to make a big difference. Yeah, I mean, Greece has been, uh, uh, had a bumper year, has just had, uh, coming out of COVID, so many people wanted to go to Greece. And in, I guess, in Americans' imagination, when they think about Europe, outside of, say, UK and stuff, Greece comes first in their mind. So from that perspective, um, they're just having a bumper year. Does all of this change the bucket list? 
uh, I don't think bucket lists exist anymore. And bucket lists existed when people couldn't afford to travel. And at this point, it seems like everybody has uh, at least some sense of where they could travel, at least the people who, who can afford. There's obviously lots of people who cannot afford to travel. But the people who can afford to travel, I don't think bucket lists exist anymore. Well, there was a concept years ago called the democratization of travel, right? That the wide, the wide body jet allowed people to fly at an economical, affordable price. Yeah, and also, I mean, one thing, which, in terms of the industry terms, if the demand in the West weakens, there's the whole other part of the world. I mean, we, we're talking a lot about India and how there's so many millions and tens of millions of tourists coming out of India. Um, Middle East, where so much investment is going, and they want to attract tourists as well. Chinese travelers haven't come back, we know that, but at some point they will. Even if it's not as big, they will. And so um, that's what's going to happen in the industry. If like demand weakens here, uh, it will come from other parts of the world. Well, you know, one of the last times you and I saw each other was in Riyadh, at Saudi Arabia, for the World Travel and Tourism Council. And their goals are rather, I mean, rather aggressive. Million tours by 2030. I think that's 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 what they're saying. Vision 2030, and they may have raised that number by now. For all I know, is that realistic? Um, the, what I've told them is, if they want 100 million tours, guess where guess where they're going to come from? India. So they have, and they have. They will continue to open uh, visa policies for um, for subcontinent tourists. That's where so many people. It's not that far from uh, from India. Saudi's not that far, and also I think Europe, U.S. will be a hard sell. I mean, this they know. It's a long-term play, U.S., in terms of U.S. tourists coming. But as you and I saw when we went there, if they're able to get there, the misconceptions fall away. There's just so much change happening. So I think it's a long-term game, and they have the money to invest and play the long game. And of course, they're not, only, they're not the only ones in the region. Dubai is there, which has built an incredible city that everybody wants to go to in the world. So certainly they're a model that everybody else is trying to follow. What are the regions of the world that are going to be hurting? Um, well, I, I, I did mention domestic tourism in U.S. did hurt. I mean, I talked to an RV company and they said we didn't get as much RV rentals this year because everybody was going to Europe. Um, I think Latin America, which has been close to U.S. Uh, and generally the same time zones in general, has to do more marketing uh, to uh, attract U.S. tourists because if they're going to Europe... Um, then they will lose out as well. We, China, yeah. um, inbound wasn't a huge market ever, but that seems like it's going to be closed for a bit. Uh, India, which we are focused on a lot, they haven't done a great job marketing India to the world. A lot of people are coming out of India to the rest of the world, and domestic tourism itself is booming, but attracting tourists to as India. As opposed to VFR traffic. As opposed to VFR. I am one of them. Yes. And so uh, I go every year. VFR, of course, means visiting friends and relatives. But, you know, you mentioned Latin America. If we take a look at what's going on with new routes that the airlines are coming up with, they're flying from secondary cities nonstop to secondary cities. Right? You know, nonstop from like Charlotte to Lyon, you know, as opposed to New York to Paris. Right. Don't they have to also do that in South America? Correct. They have to. I mean, one, there's so much... VFR um, travel already between the two continents and I feel like they will have to leverage that to build a tourism uh, market as well. There's some perception issues as you know in terms of safety and stuff in some of the countries there so I think they have to overcome that as well. Well the best way to overcome that is don't read the US State Department advisories, read the <laughs> advisory from the British Foreign Office. Uh, they, I happen to think they do a better job. Yeah that's true. I would 100% believe. They're generally more globally aware if you will. And locally aware. And locally aware. 
I mean, my definition of most American people in the State Department in foreign locations is that they never leave the compound. They're sitting at the PX having a cheese it and, and they're telling us where we should go. Yeah, I mean, for all I know, there's probably an advisor for Canada, for all we know, at this point in the U.S. Well, actually, what's happening now, the tables are being turned. The Canadians, the French, the Bahamians are now issuing travel advisories to their citizens about where not to go in the United States. Right. That's, I mean, if you talk about a loser, the like U.S. has to do work in terms of overcoming some of these perceptions uh, that U.S. has. And the good news is the U.S. Um, infrastructure, well, U.S. airports are getting somewhat better across the country. Really? It cannot have gone worse. Okay, fine. <laughs> like, Italy, it can only go up a little bit from there. New York, we're sitting here in New York. Some of these terminals are much better than they used to be. Yes, although the people who design airports have never flown, let's be honest. I mean, the walk from, a, from, the, from the counter to the gate at LaGuardia is much longer than it has ever been, and they put in carpet there that doesn't allow you to pull your bag. Yeah, I know. I don't know why they do Can that. Like, explain this to me? Brand new airport. They could have figured this out. Like, don't put carpets that people can't drag anything on. You do all the research I know. Every time I see you, you're doing research somewhere. But let's get down to brass tacks here. We were just talking about this before the break. I'm convinced that the people who design hotels have never slept in one. I'm convinced that the people who build airports have never been in one. Because, I mean, think about this. Why do we go to an airport? Do we go there for fine dining? I don't think so. Do we go there for entertainment? Do we go there for retail shopping? No, we're going to an airport to go through it, to get through our plane, right? Yeah. I mean, look, the security part, which came well, in that's inevitable. 11, uh, the whole regime, that created a whole new opportunity, quote-unquote, for the airports to unlock people spending a lot more time at the airports. What did they do? They have to get money out of them. And so did they do it through F&B, through restaurants, through shops, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, the $28 uh, beer at Newark. The, the one that went viral with the, uh, who was it, New York Times columnist, that, exactly. that David Brooks. The airport experience in U.S., one of the things, I'm sure you've seen this, you land at an international airport, I don't know, Bangkok or Shanghai or Dubai, they're quiet. In U.S., you land, they shout at you, like, like go on this line, do there, go, don't do this, do that. I never understand why they shout at people. So like, I think there, there is, to your point, the airport experience in general has to improve a lot. Um, but, but let me ask you this, though. How can you improve the airport experience if you don't redefine the airport business model? Because the airport business model now is based on revenue generation from passengers as opposed to landing fees from airlines. And so you have to, right, so you have to literally run the gauntlet of, 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 of shopping before you can ever get to the gate. And, of course, the later you are for the plane, the further it's the gate. You understand the rule there. Um, so the real look, look at the little rocking chairs they have at the Charlotte Airport. Isn't that, isn't that nice? It's, you know, it's a nice little right. It's a nice, touch. it's a nice touch, except for one thing, Robert. The message they're sending you is you're gonna be here a while. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of uh, airports' uh, revenues now come from the air side, which is basically the the after the security, and that's where you spend time, you spend money, and obviously, as you said, they charge a lot. And then, of course, we just talked about this before the break, those stupid carpets. I mean, it's the Bataan Death March. I mean, there's a reason why I have wheels on my bag. I want to be able to pull it through the airport, right? LaGuardia, as you said, has a carpet. And it, as soon as you go out from, there's a carpet that starts at a certain place. As soon as everybody slows down. They have no choice because they're now dragging the bag. The other thing is they put it. Prams for kids and stuff, everything. Everything slows down. And then the crazy part is they put in people movers that are 40 feet long. People movers. Yes, of course. Yeah, those are the ones that... that, that um, and, the re and, the, and the reason why... The, the, I'm talking about the, the, rolling, uh, oh, the, the rolling walkways. 
the reason why they're 40 feet long is they don't want to antagonize any of their concessionaires that you might be bypassing another retail oh, shopping yeah. experience. I didn't know that part. So they break it because they don't. They want people to go to the shops. Oh, they don't break it because they can only make them that long or that short. They break it because they want you to stop and take a look at what's for sale. I did not know that, but that I guess that's that's the business model now. It is the business model. So, you know, there's no point in getting to the airport early, except because the plane's going to be late. <laughs> And, and if you get to the airport early, you know, if, if you look at that Snickers bar long enough, you're probably going to buy it. Yeah. And for probably double the price you'll find outside the airport, that's for sure. So here we are in 2023. We haven't had a brand new airport in this country since Denver more than 25 years ago. Um, it's, it's sad. LaGuardia now... New terminals. New terminal. LaGuardia is an example of a bright, shining, gleaming, brightly lit, congested airport. Mini wannabe Shanghai airport. That's what it looks like a little bit to me. Well, look, we, we, look, my favorite airports in the world are probably going to mirror yours, right? I love Doha. I love Changi. Uh, I love Incheon and Korea. Oh, they do such a great job. And they figured it out. They've actually figured it out. I mean, they have gardens and, and, and you, you have a, an opportunity to, like, take your breath without having to go to your wallet. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I've spent a bunch of time in India, too, or Dubai. Just the efficiency of these airports is incredible. Like, how quickly... Lots of people, but they move them so fast. Now, you mentioned India. I've had my experiences at the airports, both in Mumbai and Delhi. But I will say, there, there used to be a time, not that long ago, if I was leaving Mumbai for the airport and my flight left at 11 o'clock at night, I'd leave at 5 in the afternoon for, just to get to the airport. Because it wasn't just the traffic. It was the bedlam inside the terminal. And if you were staying at a hotel that was like a four- or five-star hotel, they actually had staff people at the hotel to physically hold you with both arms to get you through. Uh, yes, I mean, certainly the Indian airport experience, if you go now, is changed. I mean, oh. they're building world-class airports at this point. Delhi, the Terminal 3 there, is now one of the world's top airports. Oh, yeah. They have, Well, look, they couldn't have gotten worse, and they've gotten so much better. Yeah. They're, 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 they're the fastest-growing airline market in the planet today. I mean, just the sheer numbers are there, obviously, as well. A lot of new airlines are starting, etc. Air India and, bought... Well, Air India is now run by, by, by Tata. Yeah, yeah, they bought these, you said, 500 planes. Indigo said, no, I want to buy 600 planes. So they're buying 600 planes over the next 10 years. Which explains, by the way, that if you want to start a new airline now, you can't because there are no planes available because you can't get them. There's a five-year waiting list. Why do you think JetBlue wants Spirit? They don't want Spirit because they want the routes. They don't want Spirit because they want their customers. It's a different business model. They don't want to wait five years for the same plane that they're flying now, which, Jet, which Spirit happens to fly. Yeah, I mean, let's see if it passes the regulatory muster. But other than that, yes. My guess is that it will go through. They're going to have to give up some slots. They'll have to give up some concessions. But I think they're too far down the line now. They already gave up the alliance with American Airlines. Yes, that was, so that was a big concession they had to make. Yeah. And I, th I think they'll get this one. Okay. And if they get this one, uh, there was that, you know, the, the so-called secret memorandum that, that surfaced that said their airfares would go up 40%. Oh, my goodness. What a terrible own goal. I mean, own goal on their part, but also terrible for customers. My thanks to Rafat. You might be surprised to learn how small Beverly Hills is, but at the same time, how impressive it is, which goes beyond just the high-end retail stores on Rodeo Drive. Beverly Hills Mayor Dr. Julian Gold explains. Mr. Mayor, welcome. Peter, thank you. Thank you for having me on your yeah, show. Yeah, nice to Always see you pleasure. again. Yeah, yeah, it's great. How long have you been mayor now? Well, you know, we rotate mayors. My third time as mayor but I've been on the council now for 13 years. Wow. It only seems like forever. <laughs> but you're not from here, though. 
I came from New York. I came out here. I came to California in 1982, Beverly Hills in 94. And what brought you here? The tra- the, the airplane. I know that. Stop. <laughs> no, seriously. I was looking for a job. Um, at the time, there was an opportunity at Cedars-Sinai. I'm an anesthesiologist, and there was an opportunity at Cedars-Sinai. So I came out here uh, to see if I liked it. Actually, the truth of the matter is rent in New York was very cheap at the time. I had a good job in New York, and I wasn't sure what California was going to be. So I said to my boss in New York, I said, I'd like to take a leave of absence. And he said, well, okay. I left my apartment. I left my apartment. I came to California with a suitcase. Did you give up the apartment? Nope. Well, Uh, well, subsequently, years later. No, no, for years I was bi-coastal. I kept the apartment in New York. I got on the plane with a suitcase, and I came out here. I rented an apartment. Um, I bought a car. You had I, to. I had to. I actually rented furniture. There was a place called Robert Robert's Rents Furniture. Oh, yeah. And their deal was that if you wanted for a small fee, every 90 days you could change your furniture. <laughs> you know, I figured how cool would that be? So I went and I rented furniture. I never changed it. After the first year. Tell I me said, you're not still renting. Well, that's more to the story. After the first year, I said to my boss, can I get another year's leave? And he said, yes, but that's it. I said, I understand. And in the middle of that second year, I got a note from Robert's Rents Furniture. Congratulations. You've rented so long, you own it. <laughs> <laughs> and I used that furniture until I got married when my wife said, it's all brown, I don't like it, get rid of it. And that was the end of the furniture. I have no idea what happened to it after that. And I stayed. I Obviously, I uh, made a career here. I became the chair of anesthesia at Cedars in 91, and I did that until I retired in uh, 2019. So it's been great. It's been wonderful. But give me an idea, as a sense of place, what does Beverly Hills mean to you? In, in As an individual, you know, personally, yeah. for me, Beverly Hills is my home. It's a small village. There are 30-some-odd thousand, 35,000 or less people in, in Beverly Hills, and while I don't know them all, I certainly know a lot. It was a place where my daughter went to school and where she could play on the streets, and I knew that people knew who she was because that's the kind of community it was. So it was very safe. It was a great place to raise kids. The schools were great. And so for me, it was home. It's a small village. In the mayor's role, obviously, it's different. You know, It's still that. But, of course, we're a huge international destination, and we look for, we have visitors from all over the world, and we try and find things that entertain and make people feel good. And, you know, we have a persona around that international image, and, that, you know, that's something that we work very hard to preserve. I mean, when you think about it, very small population, 30,000 plus, right? Right. In a given day, given the number of tourists who are coming to town, you could have that many tourists. Oh, in the middle of the workday, we could have 250, 300,000 people in the city, which as a, a city is a challenge. Um, do you scale for 35,000? Do you scale for 250,000? Where in the middle do you pick? And it, it, it depends. Because I mean, you have to figure out, when you talk about scaling, it's about community services too. Absolutely. We have to provide um, health and safety services, police services. You know, you can't, um, we could not have enough police to service 250,000 people on a continuous basis. We just couldn't afford that. And by the same token, 35,000 would be, you know, based on 35,000 would be too little. So it's got to be somewhere in the middle. 
you know, it's sort of like the same problem Las Vegas has because, you know, they have so many people living there, but every week <clears throat> the population swells by 400,000. Yeah, I mean, and that's the nature of um, destination cities, right? I mean, that we know that. We, and they too probably, but we also have the added factor of uh, kind of the, the cachet and knowing that there are a lot of high net worth people here and stores that attract uh, people who want to spend a lot of money, things like that. And, like, you know, like Willie Sutton said, it makes a good thing for the bad guys because that's where the money is. And so we have to be sensitive to the fact that, and um, we're very sensitive to that, to providing good security for everybody who's here. So, Mr. Mayor, you're not expanding the city. The footprint can't get any bigger, right? Correct. Can't get any higher. You have rules on that, too. We may see some increase in height in the next years. We've had some conversations about that. Really? Yeah, we're under, you know, the state is pushing us, and, and we agree that there's a need to create housing and one of the ways potentially to create housing would be to add height in places where it's appropriate you know we don't think that adding height in single family uh, areas is the right thing but in areas that are already multifamily, to add buildings that have another floor or two or three might be might be a way to increase the amount of uh, residential living spaces but in terms of square miles you are what you are that's we have 5.7 square miles not going to change have you walked it? I've walked it more than once. That's what you do when you work to get elected. <laughs> You're knocking on doors. Yeah, knocking on doors. You know, and you get to know each of the the parts of the city. They're all a little different. Some are hilly, some are not hilly, some are close together, some are not. They're all different. You get to know them all. When people come to Beverly Hills for the first time, what's the biggest surprise for them that they're not expecting? I think people think we're bigger. I think because the reputation is so big, I think people think that we're a, a geographically bigger i would i would guess that that's part of it we're actually a very walkable city i mean you know you, if you take a look at some of your you know iconic rodeo drive for example it's not that big a street no it's not and you know you talk about walking the city and and the reason we can do that is because it's only five and a half square miles and it's been designed to be very walkable in the commercial area which is where most people spend a lot of their time is is very much that uh rodeo as you say is two two three blocks three blocks long the restaurants are right nearby. The hotels, oftentimes, are right nearby, if that's where you're staying. Very, very uh, compact. And so I think people may think because of the reputation that it's just sprawls forever, but it's not. It's small. You know, we go back to the pandemic, and I, I live both in New York and Los Angeles. You know, you walk up Madison Avenue in New York, where the high-end retail stores are, and Fifth Avenue, and every third store, even today, is vacant. Right. Right? You saw just places closing left and right. Did you have that happen in Beverly Hills? We actually were fortunate we did not. Um, everybody struggled through the pandemic. We were fortunate that uh, most of the businesses survived the pandemic. As a city, we worked to help them with that. We changed the rules so that you could uh, sell from the street, certainly for restaurants. One of the things, one of the interesting things that happened in the pandemic, we had for years had a couple of restaurants that were they really liked outdoor dining and there was a question about whether or not the city was interested in a bigger program about outdoor dining with the pandemic we decided that that the restaurants in fact said well it's the only way we're going to survive because there was no indoor dining and so we allowed for the creation of what at the time was temporary um, outdoor dining and people loved it you know, people loved it now. They were cooped up in their houses and, you know, it was nice to get out. But nonetheless, 
We have a wonderful climate, and the streets really became enlivened by having people sitting on the streets and eating and talking. It was very European, had that kind of feel. In the aftermath of the pandemic, we're actually now working through the process of what does it look like if we make it permanent? That, of course, is a more complicated question. We want the... Because it involves parking and cars, too. Cars and parking and <clears throat> design of what these outdoor par parklets... We're gonna, we were not very concerned at the time because they were temporary with the look and feel of the outdoor parklets. But now, if they are going to become permanent features, then we're really going to make sure that they um, reflect the image of the city, that they're done well, that they're consistent with the businesses they support. Interestingly... Uh, not only the restaurants, there were other businesses that decided to sell from these kind of uh, areas. And we had people actually were cutting hair on the street. We had, <laughs> you know, when you couldn't go inside, they would do what they had to do. So the, the, the net of all of that was, yeah, there were, we had some people who, who got hurt in this. But for the most part, businesses managed to survive the pandemic and have come out of it strong. We've just completed our budget for this fiscal year, now this fiscal year. And uh, frankly, our tax revenues, which reflect the business in the city, are back to where they were in 2019, before the pandemic. The one that suffered the most, of course, was the hotel occupancy tax. They really got hurt. Yeah, we're at the Lermitage. During the pandemic, they were operating like a 10% occupancy. Right, and some, some places were even less. Um, and so it took them the, the longest to come back, but the hotels have been really busy. And this occupancy. hotel too? Yeah. Occupancy, as I say, from what we can tell, it's, it's at least at 2019 levels, which is wonderful. It's great. It's great for everybody. It's interesting to me because if you, once you get outside, this happened in New York as well. You move out to the street, you have the temporary plywood buildings with the, you know, little tents and stuff like that. But when you're paying property taxes, right? You're paying property taxes for that building, not for the building on the street. So have you changed your property tax rates? Well, we're not going to change the property tax. What, we'll, what we will do is, for those businesses that want to maintain structures on the street, we'll charge them rent. Oh, okay. By That's law, it. we can't give it away forever. In the pandemic, we obviously could, it was right. free. So they'll rent. Yeah, they'll, they'll rent it. They'll okay. rent that space. So then I'll get an estimate for a Diet Coke. <laughs> Just thought I'd say. <laughs> yeah. My thanks to Mayor Gold. Now, in the interest of transparency, my mother was a Los Angeles native, and when she returned to her home city, she was actually stopped not once, but twice, just walking in Beverly Hills. There's some history there to how people can actually see Beverly Hills, and historian Phil Savinick knows all about it. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that, unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Phil Savinick, how are you, sir? I'm fine, and thank you so much for inviting me back. Yeah. So, I mean, you're a Beverly Hills guy. Well, I, uh, my family moved here in 1957, yeah. and mom still lives in the same house on Rodeo Drive. So I'm the president of the Historical Society. By default, nobody's <laughs> been here longer wandering around. And by the way, you don't wander around Beverly Hills. I, I can. I, well, I'm going to tell you a story. My mom was a Los Angeles native. She was born back in 1915. She's no longer with us, but she'd come out to visit me all the time in California. And, um, and so she decided one day she was just going to walk. And because that's how she grew up. And so she was pulled over by the Beverly Hills police for walking. Yep. And, and wait. And the next thing you know, uh, I get a phone call from the Beverly Hills Police Department. Can you please come pick up your mother? But don't hurry. I said, why? Because she was there telling them stories about the history of Beverly Hills. She, she beat you to it, Phil. I mean, she was just there for, and let me tell you something, young man. That used to be an orange grove over there. That was, it, and that's, but I had to tell her, Mom, you see, you don't really walk that much in Beverly Hills. You drive. Um, there used to be a non-written law that anyone seen on the street after a certain time, the police would just say, who are you? Where are you going? Where do you live? The most famous story was told to me by uh, Monty Hall. He had moved to L.A., let's make a deal, wasn't on the air yet. His first night, he decides to take a walk. The police pull him over. Who are you? What's your name? Where do you live? They take him home. The next night, he goes out again. He gets arrested. Not arrested, but he gets taken home again. So finally, he said, once the show was on the air, they stopped. The most famous story is Frank Sinatra on the night he won his Oscar. He sneaks out of the party at the Beverly Hilton just to take a walk and get some air, just he and Oscar, and the police pull him over. And he said, I was riding so high, even when they pulled me over, it didn't bring me down. <laughs> well, you know what? It's, it's interesting because still, I mean, people drive. You know, there was that Steve Martin movie, L.A. Story, right? He mm -hmm. drove to his neighbor's house. Well, one of the things that we tried to do with the Historical Society is make something for people who do like to walk our city. Uh, it absolutely is a wonderful walking city. And we decided to uh, create an, a free app, completely free. We don't take your emails. We don't track you in any way, just to enhance the experience of Beverly Hills. And there are two walking tours on there. One is the history and architecture of Rodeo Drive and City Hall and all of it, where the nightclubs used to be and where the famous... Well, Ciro's and... Well, Ciro's was not in Beverly Hills. That's right. It was Hollywood. Yeah. But Romanoff's and the Friars Club and the Daisy Club. And the Brown Derby. Brown Derby. I don't know how many people know it, but the Brown Derby was owned by a guy named Bob Cobb. And he's... Cobb wife salad. Was invented here. And uh, so everybody knows how to chop vegetables, but nobody knows that this is where it came from. <laughs> his best friend was Lucy and Desi. So they made sure they frequented his establishment, and they even put it in an episode of I Love Lucy, where she runs into Bill Holden and lights her nose on fire. That went around the Brown Derby. And of course, I remember Chasen's. Yes. I mean, that was the restaurant. Chasen's was the restaurant. 
But I think if we were able to see a menu, there'd be very little on the menu that any of us could eat anymore. A butter fried steak was probably more cholesterol than any of us would eat in a year, <laughs> but it was divine. Yep. No, I remember going to Chase. I was a correspondent for Newsweek, and whenever we had the you know our visiting firemen out from New York from Newsweek. They wanted to go to Chasen's, right? And so you'd be sitting there, and there's Ed McMahon over there, and there's Carson over there, and there's George Burns over there. And, I mean, you just worked the room. It was like the polo lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Absolutely. It was the place to be and be seen and to eat well and to be left alone if you wanted. Uh, President Mrs. Reagan would eat there all the time in the back room. Right. Um, And there is a very famous story. Howard Hughes decided he wanted to have dinner there. And he went with a, a columnist named Jim Bacon. I know Jim Bacon for years. Right. Well, Jim says, We're going to, I'm going to Chasen's with Howard Hughes. I think this is going to be the greatest meal of my life. They ate in the kitchen. Nobody, so because they didn't want anybody to see him. And the story went on that at, uh, uh, Howard says, well, put it on my bill. But he turns to Jim and says, give the waiter 10 bucks. And Jim Bacon thought, well, you know, 10 bucks in the 40s was a lot, a lot of money. money. You know, it's Howard Hughes. He'll pay me back. He never got paid back. Right. So the day Howard Hughes died, his column was, Howard Hughes owes me 10 bucks. <laughs> well, my mother tells a story. Uh, she was dropped. My mom was a singer with all the big bands. Mm. And she was out here. And she was driving down Wilshire Boulevard in a convertible with Bing Crosby. And, she, and you'll know the story when I tell you this. And they hear the sputtering of an engine. Very loud sputtering of an engine. And it was Howard Hughes's plane on fire, crossing Wilshire Boulevard and landing on the golf course. And what? my mom saw the off-duty Marine who jumped the fence, ran out there and pulled Howard Hughes out of the plane and saved his life. If I'm allowed to correct one little thing about the story, yeah. he got two blocks from the golf course and actually burned up three houses. I, I heard, I heard he, he crashed on the golf course. No, he crashed on Linden and Lomitas. Well, that's where she was because she saw the guy go yeah. in. And the, uh, the Marine was just driving by on his way to a date yeah. and uh, pulled Howard out of the burning wreckage. And, and later on, Howard said, I want to give you a reward. I know how much he gave him, too. And, well, he said, I won't accept money to do something that, that you should just do. So they became fishing buddies. But you know what? He, what? Did, he put him on salary. Oh, he, he did. Oh, yeah. You know what he gave him? 50000 a year. You know what 50000 a year was in those days? Gigantic. Like 500000 today. Unbelievable. But basically, the guy said, you shouldn't get money to do the right thing. <laughs> but I mean, that's all part of the Beverly Hills story. Yes. Now, on one of our walking tours, for example, you go by the site of the Howard Hughes crash. Yeah. And on the app, it has pictures of the plane and pictures of the wreckage. And it even has the police chief at the time saying that, all, that the 100,000 people who came to see the crash site were almost as big a disaster as the disaster itself. <laughs> Well, the other Howard Hughes story takes place at the Beverly Hills Hotel because Howard Hughes would like find these young girls that he'd want them to be stars. And he'd take them out by train to California with their mothers. Mm-hmm. And he'd put them up in a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel on full expenses and say, stay here till I call you. Sometimes he didn't call for a year. And, and then what he did, he was so obsessed, I'm not making this up, with women's breasts that he actually tracked the route from the Beverly Hills Hotel to RKO Pictures to find the least amount of bumps because he didn't want the breast to jiggle. And he instructed his chauffeur to drive only that route. And, and these people were in the hotel. Can you imagine on expenses in the Beverly Hills Hotel for the bungalow for a year waiting for Howard Hughes to call? 
that was part of the reason that they had the little person with the uh, xylophone yeah. who would hit the xylophone and say, telephone call for, right. so that the women didn't have to hide in their room. They at least would know if he was going to call. Then that became the biggest thing in town was to have your name announced at the polo lounge. <laughs> so people who were in the polo lounge who had nobody to call, they'd say to their friend, go and call me. And so I'll get paged. <laughs> I'm going to try that sometime. I mean, this hotel that we're in right now, I remember when it was part of a development of a number of hotels in Los Angeles. Uh, it was Ashkenazi, right? They had Mondrian up on Sunset, and they had a number of other ones. And um, it was really a converted condo, right? And now look at it. It's, it's a completely different thing. A five-diamond hotel. Yeah. Now, Beverly Hills, to me, having grown up here, is really two different towns. It's the town that has Rodeo Drive and, uh, you know, purses and, and, you know, suits that cost tens of thousands of dollars. But it's also hometown and a town with such a rich history and legacy. So the Historical Society made something for free. You want to come to Beverly Hills and have a good time for free? Go. We, we installed the Beverly Hills Experience app on your phone. And you go there. You want to see where all the movie stars lived and do a walking tour. Jimmy Stewart lived on one corner. Lucille Ball and Desi lived across see, the street. See, I remember walking on some of those streets. There was George Burns in his house. And, and there, you know, Gregory Peck. They were all there. They all lived there. But one street, Roxbury, Jimmy Stewart, Lucille Ball, Jack Benny, Agnes Moorhead, Jack Palance, Rosemary Clooney, yeah. the Gershwins, Hedy Lamar, Ginger Rogers. Around the corner was George uh, Jerome Kern, who would come in and work with the Gershwins and play tennis with them on weekends. Rachmaninoff would come and play tennis with them on weekends. It was a salon of the brightest and the best and the most creative people, probably whoever lived. And now, of course, if you drive around Beverly Hills and you see these big mansions, you go, well, who lives there? And you're you're going to laugh. You say, who lives there? They say, oh, yeah, you remember that, the, thing they, the guy who invented Tidy Bowl? Oh, yeah, that, he lives there. Oh, oh, and who lives in that house? Oh, that's a huge mansion. That, that's the guy who invented Chatty Cathy. And, and was, so people invent something, they're known for one thing, and then they move to Beverly Hills. In our era, you knew that it wasn't that these people were rich. These people were great. You were surrounded by greatness. And it became part of you to go, well, I can do that. I can be in show business. I can have right and have you know people make my movies, things like that. So it really gave us an unlimited possibilities to be around all these people. Um, so it was... Now, when the city was founded... It was founded by the richest people in the world who just happened to have been the first movie stars ever. The first two movie stars ever were Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford. And there have never been any more famous than them. And of course, Mary Pickford lived where? Pickfair. With her husband, Douglas Fairbanks, they built the first big estate. Um, did, uh, David Ge did David Geffen buy that? No. Uh, it's a very twisted story over the years it was bought by the owner of the lakers jerry buss oh. and all of his guests who came to stay there were seven feet tall <laughs> so he changed all the doorways all the bathtubs all so it became a fun house now the other thing was it was built in 1919 by the time you get to 1979 the termites had eaten almost the whole house 
So originally you would drive up on the ground floor. By 1979, it had settled, so <laughs> the front doors no longer opened. So there was an actress named Pia Zadora who, oh my who, God. who lobbied the city to tear it down. And the biggest fear was that they would subdivide it because you could put 10 houses on this one lot. So the city said, if you use the basic pad of the original, we will let you rebuild, but you cannot subdivide. The only other house is the Buddy Rogers house, who was her second husband. So basically, there was a a house here. um, One house um, became, it's now 108 houses. Uh, So that's been the trajectory of the city is these were gigantic equestrian uh, uh, resorts almost. Uh, And, you know, Mary built the first house. Doug wanted, I mean, Charlie Chaplin lived down the street. Tom Mix was living on the corner. Buster Keaton was down the street. They had unlimited money and they built these palaces in their own glory. So you, and let's not forget William Randolph Hearst, who built the, the house up on St. Pierre with a moat. I didn't know that one. Oh, yeah. The and, house, and he came home one night, and he saw Charlie Chaplin in a gondola with his, with his girlfriend, and he shot him. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, well, he winged him. Of course, it's Bel Air. I don't have to. I know. He winged him. Now, the Hearst story in Beverly Hills is that Marion Davies owned a mansion called the Beverly House. And everyone knows what that house looks like because that's the house in The Godfather that ends up with the horse in the bed. Those are the grounds. That's the pool. That was their bedroom. So everyone knows that house. That was William Randolph Hearst's house with Marion Davies. Basically, he said to her, you know, I got warehouses full of stuff. See what you like. So the library came from Italy in the 16th century. It was a little Hearst castle right on Beverly Drive. Unbelievable. Phil Savinick, the president of the Beverly Hills Historical Society. Where do we find this app? The app is completely free. It, it's on Android and it's on Apple. Uh, and basically, you just download it onto your phone. There are pictures, there are stories, there are videos, there are walking tours. And we go a layer beneath what people really know about the town. Our real goal was, if you come to this town, we want to enhance your experience. My thanks to Phil. One way to judge a city is to look at its crime statistics. The Beverly Hills, which reminds me a lot of Monaco, prides itself on being pretty buttoned up in terms of law enforcement. Mark Stainbrook is the police chief. Mark Stainbrook, chief, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Good to be here. Uh, you know, before you came to Beverly Hills, you were down in San Diego. You were at LAPD for a number of years. What's different about being the police chief of Beverly Hills? Going through all the stereotypes notwithstanding, how many times have you seen Beverly Hills Cop? Come on, the truth. I've seen it quite a few times. <laughs> and uh, when I got this job, my friends at the San Diego Harbor Police made sure to put some bananas in my tailpipe. Did they really do that? They did. And they... And they uh, there were some good memes of me. Let's just say that, um, uh, looking like Eddie Murphy and, um, you know, in the graphics and stuff, uh, coming to Beverly Hills. So they had fun with me when, when they knew I was coming here. But you know, Beverly Hills reminds me a little bit of Monaco in one respect. It's not a big place. It's manageable. Uh, you have control because it's not humongous. You pretty much know who comes in and who doesn't. 
Um, and you know, it, it's it's not just it's not we're not talking like police state stuff, but you have a pretty much of a control. You know who belongs and who doesn't, and what they're supposed to be doing, what they're not supposed to be doing. Well, it's a small city. It's five point five square miles, thirty five thousand people. But obviously, it's a big tourist destination, and everybody wants to come here to see Rodeo Drive and get their ta- picture taken by the Lily sign, put it on Instagram. So we do have a big. Did you do that population. too? Did you do that too? I did not do that. No, okay. I, I don't. I don't <laughs> participate in the tourist stuff. But it is a small city. We're yeah. kind of an island in the middle of L.A., bordered three sides by L.A. and one side by West Hollywood. Uh, but we do know who's coming and going because we use a lot of technology here to keep our citizens and our, our tourists and businesses safe. You know, we're seeing this all over the country, and it's it's so troubling to me. And I saw it start really at the during the pandemic, and I said, this is going to get out of control. And I live both in Los Angeles and New York, and I see it in New York as well. People who will go re- just walk into stores and rampantly shoplift. And, and just walk right out. The store has a policy not to confront them, not to accost them. And it's like I'm seeing this right in front of my eyes. I'm sure you're seeing it as well. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank your local politicians. Thank your state politicians. And thank your federal politicians. If you want to see change, I always say just vote different um, because our politicians have put laws in place that make, uh, make it very difficult for us to enforce on the police side. And here you can steal almost $1,000 worth of property and you get a ticket and you walk away. Uh, you don't of go course, to in Beverly Hills, that's a Diet Coke. Well, in Beverly Hills, you, uh, you steal see? a T-shirt and it'll be a felony. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, the laws have made it tough where there, we do see a lot more crime now, a lot more property crime and things as you're describing. And so um, I, I just tell people, like, when they ask me as the chief, I mean, my guys are arresting these people, but we arrest the same people over and over again. Because they become misdemeanors? It, or a ticket? It, yes, it's a misdemeanor. It's a citation and release and with the no bail policies that they've enacted like nobody really goes to jail for those property crimes. So much more likely that they're going to do it and keep doing it until they're um, punished. Of course, you're also in some communities seeing the, a point of diminishing returns where the stores can no longer absorb those losses. And you're seeing Nordstrom start to close in certain communities or Whole Foods, places you never th- thought would close because they're so big a part of the community. And when they go, then the community suffers as well. Absolutely. You see it nationally and you've seen it in other parts of the state, but not in Beverly Hills. Uh, thank, thank goodness. And uh, our officers continue to work hard to keep everybody safe here. So basically, it's a $1,000 limit. I can tell everybody the chief told me. I think they said it's $950, <laughs> I believe. If this, if I so basically, everybody's the playing the price is right. Yeah, somewhat. somewhat. Yeah. But it's quite a national phenomenon. But I also see the tide changing. I see uh, people starting to get really angry and upset at what they're seeing, and they're starting to talk to their politicians and legislators and say, listen, we this is not what we want, and you're starting to see backlash. So I think that's good. Um, you know, we do need a lot more help out there with drug and alcohol, rehabilitation, job placement, working with the unhoused, and especially like everyone's seen mental illness is at a crisis levels now. It is, not just in Beverly Hills, but nationwide. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because when you talk about the concept of community, right, if you lose the infrastructure, you lose the community. You know, it's, it's you know, you need police, you need schools, you need hospitals, you need places for people to come together, right? Places of worship. You need places for, and, and in many cases when people go shopping, that's a place where they come together, the local stores, right? Absolutely. When you begin to lose that, now some of that left during the pandemic because of economic reasons, mm-hmm. but all this other stuff that's coming now, it's a little scary. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, we also need jails, and we also need prisons, and we need mental health institutions, um, and we need places to actually give people job training and rehabilitate drug and uh, people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. So what are you guys doing that you can do as a role model here in Beverly Hills to try to, to try to solve that? Oh, a lot of things. Well, first of all, on the technology level, we have over 2,300 cameras in Beverly Hills. So if you commit a crime in Beverly Hills, there's a good chance we have you on camera. Uh, so basically, it's a selfie capital. Uh, absolutely. Self, between selfies and our cameras, you're, you're on camera most of the time you're here, I'm sure. <laughs> and we've surrounded the city with automated license plate readers. So um, if you come in in a stolen vehicle or you come here to commit crime, uh, we're going to catch you. And we fly a drone 12 hours a day at, um, all around the city. And that has also helped us catch criminals. But that's just technology. I mean, technology is great, but you have to have the people on the ground to enforce it, which we have great officers and great detectives. But one of the, one of the things we're doing now is we have a, what we call a MET team, mental health evaluation team. And what they you got, do, you got to have that. You have to. And they're, they're two officers trained and they're working with a mental health practitioner. And what they do is they go out and work with people who have mental health issues, particularly the unhoused. Um, although it could also be people that um, are, are residents or visitors and uh, help them get the treatment that they need and hopefully make sure that they don't commit crimes and get them into the treatment that they do need. You know, in Los Angeles, and I've been here since I was 21, I can't go under a freeway overpass now hmm. without seeing homeless. Hmm. Um, in New York City, there are now tents in Central Park. Uh, and it's not just, I'm sure you'd agree with this, Chief, it's not just a matter of housing them. You have to treat them. Absolutely. Most of the people, and not all, you know, they're very, there are different types of people who are unhoused, but quite a number are having their mental health issues or drug and alcohol treatment uh, that are exacerbated by mental health issues. And so there is that definitely treatment aspect of it. Uh, since I became a police officer, the laws have changed quite dramatically. Um, there's been a number of court decisions that have impacted the way police can interact with unhoused individuals and so we have to take much more of an un, uh, hands-off approach and work with um, social service type resources the other to, professionals to, to get those people help of course we will interact with them if they're committing a crime or they've committed a crime um, but i don't think the social service aspect has caught up to where law enforcement is in terms of the number of social service workers you need, the infrastructure, the kind of back-end services um, to get people off the street, get them housed, get them jobs, and, and get them the treatment they need. How do you fix that? Well, it's going to be a long, slow process, but you mentioned community. It really starts at the local level. And in Beverly Hills, I, I know I saw something recently we're working on um, uh, contracting housing to get people into housing. We have also a non-policing function called the Beverly Hills Outreach Team that does outreach to the unhoused. And, of course, work closely with our mental health professionals, our officers, and the, even our fire department has nurse practitioners, which often interact with the unhoused, who have other medical conditions besides the drug, alcohol, and mental health issues. Chief, when people, I mean, obviously it's a tourist destination. People want to come. They want to be part of it, right? It's that they, uh, you know... They, they go back to uh, the old uh, Julia Roberts movie as well. I mean, it, it, all those scenes in Beverly Hills that people want to recreate. We, we don't call it jet setting now. We call it set jetting. But people really want to go see where things were shot, right? What's the biggest mistake tourists make when they come? 
Well, Beverly Hills is a very safe place, first of all, and the crime here is much lower than any of the areas around us, so tourists can feel very safe. But in any tourist city, you have crime, and some crime focused on tourists because they know they come here with their luggage and their jewelry and all, all extra money and all that kind of stuff. So the, the first thing for your own personal safety is just be aware of your surroundings. Who's around you? Where did you park? Is there anybody following you or watching you? Those sorts of things. Um, just real basic things. Uh, we have all the time, you know, burglaries from motor vehicles, but people leave the vehicle unlocked and they leave their cell phone in there or their iPad or a bag. Um, they go shopping and they leave their shopping bags in there and they walk to lunch. That's an advertisement. And it is because, because burglars, car burglars want the easy route. So they try handles and see what cars are open or they look in the window and see what's inside. So just hiding your valuables or not even leaving them in your car, carrying them with you, leaving them locked in the hotel room, those kind of things. Very important. Helps us, helps them, and, and reduces crime. Are you seeing a lot of, I mean, look, we're in a car society here in Los Angeles. We know that. It's mm-hmm. the car culture, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have a, a cavalcade of, of greatest hits of cars that you pulled over that you couldn't believe somebody was driving that kind of car. Oh, you're going to see every kind of car here. Bentleys, Maseratis, Lamborghinis, and my, my officers are often filmed pulling over um, supercars. So it's quite, it's, uh, I think there's one YouTube channel, the whole trend is officers pulling over supercars and quite a few <laughs> shots in Beverly Hills. But are you seeing not robberies or burglaries of cars, but the, the stealing of the catalytic converters? Oh, absolutely. The thefts of catalytic converters. Mo- mostly those are Toyotas and uh, Prius type vehicles. But we do etch and catch programs. And What is that? Uh, etch and catch is when we um, etch uh, information onto the catalytic converters and then we spray paint it so it's harder to sell or resell. So when they roll under their car with their tools, they go, oh, we don't want this one. So if you can get your catalytic converter, especially in those high profile Toyotas and Priuses, um, trucks and Priuses, I should say, uh, it makes it less valuable for them and they probably won't steal it but we catch catalytic converter thieves all the time really absolutely but there are no chop shops in beverly hills no they take them somewhere else and and sell them the rent's too expensive (laughs) for a chop shop probably in beverly hills (laughs) exactly what's the what's the biggest challenge you have the biggest challenge i have gosh um I don't, for a police chief, I have a great job. I have a very supportive community, a very supportive city council, and um, I have great officers. People say, hey, you're doing good, chief. And I go, well, I'm doing good because I have great people that work with me. Uh, I think the biggest challenge for us is that, like anywhere, anywhere else, like Beverly Hills, they have high expectations when they go to shop, eat, all those things. Um, and they have high expectations of the police department. So always making sure our customer service is at the absolute highest level. So when you call the Beverly Hills Police Department, we will be there. And it doesn't matter what you call it about. We'll figure it out. How many, I mean, as a fireman in New York, you know, we talk about how many runs you do, right? And how many times you're getting banged out. Mm-hmm. How many runs are you doing in a day? Oh, we probably get about 30,000 calls for service a year. So it, it can, get, can get very busy. It can. How many members of the force? Uh, We have about 139 right now. We're looking to get up to about 151. And uh, we're constantly hiring. So I'm always, you know, plugging Beverly Hills Police. If you want to be a police officer and you want to get paid really well and be in a community that supports you and where we're still very proactive and using technology, come to Beverly Hills PD. We take laterals and new hires. 
See, was that, was that your pledge right now? That, that, that was, you just did the bit. Just go to bhp.org and sign up. <laughs> but as a community, what's the biggest challenge? The community. I think, I think Beverly Hills is the smallest international city with a huge profile. Um, you know, it's a itty-bitty international city, I like to say. And so anything that happens here can make world news. And, and so um, it doesn't matter, like, a celebrity gets pulled over or gets arrested or something bad happens to someone famous, which, which can happen here, you're going to be all over the news real quick, and it can go from real quiet to all of a sudden CNN and, and MSNBC and Fox News are sitting outside your office and there's dozens of cameras out there. So it can be a little stressful as a chief. Exactly. So basically, the words designated driver might come into play? It always helps. <laughs> <laughs> and be careful in those supercars. They go really fast. Uh, what was the fastest one you clocked? Oh, geez. I don't know what my officers have clocked here, but I'm sure there's some in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and a 35 zone, I'm sure. And they got pulled over. I'm sure of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah I would and like that's to, if they're lucky and they didn't wrap themselves around a tree yeah. or into a house or something. See, I would love to visit your impound lot. You've got to have some pretty cool vehicles. I saw there. a cool Mustang in there the other day, a cool older fastback Mustang. I was wondering, like, where did that get impounded from? <laughs> Beverly Hills. Yeah, yeah, but like on what kind of caper? I was wondering about that. You know, you, you probably see some good ones in there. Oh, yeah. That's it. I love it. Chief Mark Steinberg, the chief of police of Beverly Hills, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I appreciate that. Me. Now, listen, and I want to do a ride-along with you. Oh, absolutely. We'll, yeah. we'll take you all around and you can have some fun. Pull over some supercars. I'm in. Okay. All right. Sounds like a we plan. We have a date. All right, sir. My thanks to Chief Steinberg, to Phil Savinick, to Mayor Dr. Julian Gold, and to Rafat Ali. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. And for more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, I know you know the drill. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.